single thing you want to say. We don't want to miss the intention of your heart. We don't want to miss your hand drawing us close to you. And Lord, I pray, God, that in your presence, God, we would revel and allow you to take us to that place where faith is without borders, where love is limitless. And God, the place where your, your presence dwells, God. Thank you that of all the places in the universe you could have chosen to be, you've chosen to dwell in our hearts and in us, and that you call us to be living temples of your spirit. God, thank you for your deep and great love for us. Thank you for the opportunity we have to worship together, to be in your presence, to know that, um, that God, you've chosen a relationship with us, and what was previously impossible, you made possible through your son, Jesus Christ. And in so doing, you didn't simply make bad people good, you made dead people live. You brought us from death to life. And we thank you that we can now spend this life, not just this temporary one, but the eternal one we've been gifted through Christ. Worshiping, celebrating you, being in your presence, Lord. God, we love you so much and thank you for this time. Pray that your spirit would lead us, oh Lord, and fill us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, saints. It is fall. It's about time, right? So we've been mid-60s and 70s, praise the Lord. Plus, you guys got an extra hour of rest today, so a 25-hour day. That's pretty amazing. Um, and, and I don't know about how you guys might feel about daylight savings time, and I'm like, you know, I've heard things about maybe we should have it, maybe we shouldn't have it, but I will say that no matter where you might stand on daylight savings time as a principle, it is nice to have an extra hour of the day to kind of do whatever it is we want. And so we decided, obviously, since you're here, you want to spend an extra hour with our church, so our church service will be running an extra hour today. Just kidding. Anyway, had you for a second. In addition to that, I want to uh, welcome you to our pajama day, and I know that... Uh, some, for some of you who are coming here for the first time, you might be, that's a little weird. And it's like, we only do it twice a year. And what I love, one of the things I love about the ministry of Jesus is how often he took the time to interrupt the formality of worship and routine and ritual uh, in his time to be able to push past the, formal, the formal ritual of faith and to be able to say, where is your heart? Because that is more important. And he did so by not washing his hands at times when we went to meals, being very unsabbath-like during the Sabbath. We chose to do it just, we choose to do it just a couple times a year by having pajama day. And I appreciate you guys jumping in. And for those who, of you who didn't, that's totally okay as well. So that could be the reason for us doing it. Or maybe I just like wearing jammies to church. So anyway, made up an excuse for it. Um, regardless, this pajama day service acts as an informal and fun interruption to what is typically the more formal routine of our Sunday morning worship, which is important to note because that's what we're going to be teaching on and spending some time on today, an interruption to ministry, uh, an interruption in the ministry of Jesus. And we're going to hit that in just a little bit. But before we do, in case you missed last week, we are diving in to a new service, or I'm sorry, new service, a new uh, sermon series that we launched last week that uh, comes as a contrast 
to what we've been spending our year doing. So we've spent most of our year walking through the issue of truth, highlighting truths that we believe. And with this series, we decided to come alongside and go through a series about love, focused on love. Because we understand as Christians, there is a symbiotic relationship between the two. Truth and love, they're married to one another. They're each beautiful on their own, but they were designed to work in harmony with each other. Truth always being expressed in love and love built on truth. That's how these two work together. These two principles work together. And last week we shared that uh, in spending this series, talking about love as a contrast, not as a contrast, but to complement the truth that has been shared over the course of the year, that we're building last week's teaching and also maybe even this series around a verse, a verse that most of us are familiar with, if not all of us, John 3, 16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so last week, our focus on building from this verse is that God's love towards us is complete, absolute, unconditional, perfect, and whole. And that that is true whether we are obedient, disobedient, or defiant towards him. Now, our choices and our decisions to be obedient, disobedient, or defiant will affect the results of our lives. We're going to experience consequences of those decisions, but God's love for us remains steadfast and continuous, regardless of where you might be. But, and this is where we're going this week, if I accept that's true, that God's love for me is complete, total, perfect, and unconditional, what if I don't believe that I deserve that kind of love? What if I have a hard time getting past the fact that I oftentimes think I'm unlovable? There are a number of us who wrestle with this core wrong belief that we are unlovable. Uh, we get this message from a number of different places. Some of us got it when we were kids, uh, when we had maybe a parent who left us um, and said, and, and we somehow inherited the message, though it was never said. I'm sure no parent would ever say that to their children. But we got the idea when they left that we were unlovable in some way, shape, or form. It doesn't always have to be a parent leaving, though. Sometimes there are parents who are still together and as a family, and yet they're just not there for us. They don't listen to us and don't make time for us. And so we get the message, directly or indirectly, that maybe we're unlovable. And that insidious lie has, has woven its way into every other relationship that we've had since. Or maybe it wasn't our parents. Maybe it was a close friend who abandoned us in a time of need. Maybe it wasn't parents at all. Maybe it was a spouse. I think that happens too, that we can have spouses that we're committed to for life, committed to love one another, and then when that commitment is broken, whether in divorce or just broken unspokenly in our, in our relationship, we can just feel abandoned and unloved and unlovable. The family is where this message hurts the most, but I want you to understand it doesn't just come from our family. Believe it or not, it's happening all the time in our society, in our culture, and even on TV. Commercials all the time are telling you that you're ugly and unlovable. That's why you should buy our soap, buy our shampoo, you should buy our makeup, you should buy our clothes, you should buy our diet plan. Because the idea is that you're not good enough 
on your own. You're not beautiful enough on your own. But if you use our soap, our deodorant, our shampoo, our diet plan, wear our clothes, then you will finally be everything that you wish you could be. Attractive, beautiful, desirable, lovable. With the implication that if you're not using our product, you're not. It's not just commercial. Society does the same thing. If you want to be desirable and worthy of love, then maybe you need to have the right job. You need to buy the right car. You need to have the right things. You need to have the right friends and be part of the right people group. That that's what it takes to be desired, loved, wanted in our society. And these are the lies the enemy uses to twist your life. And if it helps, I want to let you know that this is not a new phenomenon. It didn't just come around when we started having commercials and media and all that. This has been going on for a very very long time. This idea that people can walk through life and feel like I am unlovable. No matter what you might say or what matter you might what you matter what you might do, I don't feel worthy or deserving and because of that, I cannot receive what someone else might want to earnestly and honestly give. In the New Testament, in the gospels in particular, uh The authors take a bit of time to focus on those who have felt unlovable. And in particular, there is one group that's highlighted that's particularly ostracized and particularly unloved. And the Bible refers to them as the lepers. Uh, And for those of you who grew up reading the Bible, reading Bible stories, and and you might have seen that that Jesus oftentimes, right, a number of different times, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus goes out of his way to help and to heal the lepers. As a matter of fact, when John the Baptist sent a messenger to him while he was in prison and said, are you really the Messiah? One of the things that Jesus responded to him is that tell John that the blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers are being healed. Right? That was one of the testifying ways that uh, Jesus wanted to affirm John that yes, I am the real deal. I am he. But maybe when you've read these stories of leprosy, you never knew or understood what leprosy really is. So I want to take a moment to help you understand what this disease is and what it does. Leprosy is a disease of the skin, the nerves, the eyes, and the respiratory system. It's a disease that's actually affected and afflicted mankind for thousands of years in virtually every part of the world, even today. Believe it or not, there's there's about 180,000 people in the world today that are afflicted with leprosy. Uh, At its most basic level, leprosy is a bacterial infection that's marked by painful skin sores and lesions, but progressively leads over time to more damage of the skin, the nerves, the limbs, and the eyes. And to understand the story, I'm going to put up some pictures for you. And I want to be clear, these pictures are not designed to be gratuitous. I'm not trying to just rub your arm. I just want you to understand. Can we go through a couple of those slides? I want you to understand what it looks like to be afflicted with leprosy. And again, not designed to be gratuitous, but for you to understand how having this disease might cause people around you to want to avoid you, to feel uncomfortable around you, and how people who are afflicted with leprosy might easily see themselves as unapproachable and unlovable. Unless... You know, Jesus. 
Jesus treats the unlovable differently than how the rest of us do. And his example of this is found in the book of Mark when Jesus encounters a leper who wants to be made clean, who wants to be healed. And this is found in Mark chapter 1. He shares this story. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. There's two things I want you to notice from this short little story here. The first is that Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the leper. Here's what's interesting, right? The reason why he has to reach out his hand is because the leper is keeping himself at a safe distance. Lepers were considered by, under the Jewish law, as being unclean. So anyone who touches a leper is around a leper. And because leprosy is contagious, they had to keep an appropriate distance. So he didn't come close enough. So Jesus had to intentionally stretch out his hand and reach out and do what no righteous Jew would do, touch an unclean man. He touches him. Why? Moved by compassion. Secondly, the second little interesting fact that I want you to note in this story and in other stories about lepers in the Bible is that the Bible doesn't ever tell us his name. It just refers to him as the leper. And I want you to understand the significance of this, right? Here is a man who is afflicted with this disease that makes him unapproachable, unlovable, untouchable by the community around him. And he has a name. But maybe even for him, because it's been so long that he's been afflicted with this disease, that maybe he doesn't even remember his own name. He's simply referred to as a leper. Now, I want you to imagine how that might feel to have the ugliest part of who you are be what everyone sees and thinks about you. Every time they see and think about There are no lepers in this room, but I think some of us, maybe even more than some of us, we can relate to what this feels like, right? This feeling that the ugliest parts of us happens to be what we feel like everyone else sees when they see us, what everyone else thinks about when they think about us. For some of us, that that ugly thing might be visible. Um, I'm too skinny, I'm too fat, I'm weirdly shaped, I have no butt. Uh, for me, my eyes are a little too small. Where did your eyes go when you laughed, you know? And so um, my head is a little too big or maybe a lot too big. I'm bow-legged, which doesn't explain why I wear shorts all the time, come on. But, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of some of mine, right? But maybe it's not all visible. There's some of us who have things that isn't on the outside, but it's on the inside. I'm such a mean person. I'm lazy. I'm jealous. I'm resentful. I hate or can't stand to be around dot, dot, dot. My brother, my sister, my parents, this person at school. I always want to hurt myself. I always want to hurt someone else. Maybe that's the ugly thing about us. And I've got some of those too, right? Check, check, check. We can all relate to this leper in some way, shape, or form because we understand what it might feel like to have the ugliest parts of us be what we think others see when they 
see us. And because of that, we end up having this desperate desire to take that ugliness and tuck it away, to hide it, or to cover it up. Maybe we even try to fool ourselves into pretending that it's not really there, knowing the entire time that it's absolutely there. So yes, how does that affect us and how does that connect with this idea of love? It's, it affects us because, yeah, maybe we can accept that there's this objective truth that, yeah, God does love us completely, totally, wholeheartedly, everything you said, Frank, but what does that objective truth mean when it doesn't connect to my personal reality? Because I, the, when that objective truth that God loves me doesn't connect with I can't experience that, I can't feel that because there's something I believe about myself that keeps getting in the way of receiving that love. What happens then? How is God supposed to show me love when I'm the one feeling unlovable? And to answer that question, I want to tell you a story, a story in the Bible that you might have read before, but I hope you will start seeing differently and maybe understanding differently after this morning. It's a story found in the book of Luke, chapter 8, and it begins in verse 42, and it starts this way. It says, then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> and as Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. So Jesus in the, is in the course of doing ministry, and this synagogue leader named Jairus comes up to him and says, Jesus, I've got a 12-year-old daughter she is sick. She's dying. It's urgent. Please come with me. And Jesus says, okay, I'll go with you. And along the way, he's interrupted. On the way to helping out Jairus and his family, and in particular his daughter, he's interrupted by this woman in the crowd who has suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. This is her ugliness. This is the part of her that she has tried to hide. This is how she's referred to in the Bible as the bleeding woman. And this is the part that she believed made her unlovable. So I'm going to try and not be overly graphic here because I know this is going to be a bit uncomfortable. But you need to understand what's happening in this story. The woman's been bleeding for 12 straight years. And this bleeding isn't from a cut in her arm. You understand? It's feminine bleeding. For some of you men who uh, maybe didn't grow up with sisters, this is the type of bleeding that typically occurs about once a month, and it goes on for a few days. It does affect your mood. I have a wife and three daughters, and they're on this rhythm <laughs> without break. And uh, it usually lasts a few days. And on those days when they're bleeding, women typically use some type of pad or tampon to help curb the bleeding. Hopefully that was tactful enough. So I'll stop. Before this woman... There is no break. This bleeding has been going on for 12 straight years, nonstop, relentlessly. And if you can imagine that, even for you guys, imagine how difficult that can be to deal with, how that might have such a tremendous effect on your life. First of all, what it means is you really can't go out in public, it's embarrassing. 
So forgive me, ladies, but they didn't have tampons back then. They didn't have pads, and they didn't even have toilet paper. What they had were rags and string, right? You know, rags kind of scratchy, itchy, uncomfortable. And so as you can imagine, typically women who struggled with that or had that was at their time of month, they just simply didn't go outside and socialize during that time. They stayed home. Well, this woman has been stuck living this way, mostly out of our home, for, out of her home for 12 years. Secondly, because she was constantly bleeding, according to the Jewish law, she was considered to be unclean. That means she couldn't go to the temple, she couldn't enter the temple, she couldn't worship God with her people for 12 years. And what that means is she was disconnected from her society. She was disconnected from her relationships. She was disconnected, forced to live this isolated life because of God's own law. And finally, she's most likely not in a relationship because it's difficult to imagine a man wanting to be with a woman who is bleeding every day for 12 years. It's not only uncomfortable to see, but makes, you know, very difficult. It's that discomfort, that little bit of an icky feeling you're feeling right about now. That's how the people around this woman felt around her all of the time. She was miserable, tormented, and from that place of misery, torment, and desperation, she acted. Uh, verse 44, coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe, which is kind of the, the hem of his robe, and immediately the bleeding stopped. Now, I don't know what made this woman imagine or think that this was going to work. She heard that Jesus, the famous uh, prophet and rabbi and teacher and healer, was coming into town. And she worked up the courage to go outside because she was filled with hope that maybe after everything that I've tried, spending all of my money trying to deal with different treatments, maybe this is it. So she goes outside, she fights her way through the crowd, which is more difficult and more challenging than you might imagine. Because again, remember, she is by law unclean, and anyone who touches her is also unclean. So being in a crowd, she knows is wrong. And yet she fights through the crowd nonetheless. And I'm not sure if it's because she needed to do this to reach Jesus, or maybe she didn't want to be seen, or even equally likely because she's exhausted. Because that's what happens when you bleed for 12 years. You get iron deficiency, and you just get exhausted very quickly. But she doesn't walk, march through the crowd to reach Jesus. She ends up crawling on her hands and knees through the crowd to reach out to touch the hem of Jesus' robe. All she wants, right, what we can discern is that she doesn't want to be seen. She wants to remain invisible, but she wants to be healed. Unclean, isolated, an outcast, ugly, and unlovable. She didn't feel like she was even worthy of God's attention. All she wants is to be invisible, to get in, to be healed, and then leave. But Jesus doesn't let her get away with that. Who touched me? Verse 45, Jesus asked. Everyone denied it, and Peter said, uh, Master, this whole crowd is pressed up against you. But Jesus said, Somebody, someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. And when the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble 
and fell to her knees in front of him. And the whole crowd heard her explain why she touched him and that she had been immediately healed. This bleeding woman had touched the hem of Jesus' robe and she was healed. All she wanted to do was to go away, to crawl away somewhere and celebrate privately her liberation, her being set free. But Jesus didn't let her. Instead, he calls her out, calls her out of the crowd, makes her come into the open. She's kneeled at his feet. And Luke says that Jesus had her tell her story in front of the entire crowd. If she had not just been healed, this would be the most embarrassing day, humiliating moment of her life. So why did Jesus make her do it? Why did Jesus humiliate her in this way? And the answer is actually found in the next verse. Verse 48. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Her faith has made her well. The faith that it took to leave her isolation and to go out in public. The faith that was necessary to make her way through the crowd, crawling on her hands and knees to reach Jesus. The faith that was required to believe that she could be healed simply by touching the robe of Jesus. And the faith that was expressed through the embarrassment and humiliation of telling her story. And here's what I want us to draw from this story of the once bleeding woman. Jesus understands something that we need to understand as well when it comes to the ugly stuff that we have inside of us. And here's what he understood that we must as well. That you cannot be freed from your ugliness until you're willing to be open about it. Until you're willing to share it. Until you're willing to confess it. Because until you're willing to do that, all you're doing is hiding it. You know, and I understand it as a church. Church, awaken, right? We need to be a place where sinners and strugglers can come and share openly, honestly, and receive forgiveness, love, and care. We need to be the church, the type of people that invites that type of openness and honesty. And I get it. I know there's some of us here where judgment needs to come in. And yes, judgment absolutely has a place, in particular judgment about sin. But I want to tell you something. Judgment, the moment there is a time for judgment, that time, that moment is not when someone is coming to you open, honest, and vulnerable. That is not the time for judgment. That is the time for care Love, empathy. You know what I found interesting? What I find interesting in this story, and maybe I hope you find interesting as well, is in this story with the bleeding women, and here's the discrepancy, right? She thought that she was healed when the bleeding stopped. But that's not what Jesus saw. Jesus understood that the bleeding wasn't simply a physical issue. It had affected her sense of identity, 
her mind, what she thought about herself. It affected her emotions. It affected her spiritual life, her ability to worship God and be with God's people in worship. In other words, Jesus saw that this wasn't a physical problem. It had permeated over 12 years to affecting every single part of her life. And the, because of that, Jesus called her out to come into the open and to share her ugliness in public so she could be set free from it in every way. And in so doing, Jesus changed her life. Because when he did that, from that moment forward, she was no longer going to be thought of as the bleeding woman, but she was going to be the woman who was healed by her Savior, Jesus. She went from outcast to wonder. With the presence of Jesus standing right there for her and saying, young lady, or middle-aged lady, right? I want you to tell your story. He changed her story to a testimony. And by standing alongside her, he said that now that she has been healed as her rabbi, teacher, and healer, she is now to be reintroduced into the community of faith. She's now to be reintroduced to be a part of her people again. She is not only healed, but she is restored. And that means the people who once looked at her, offended and disgusted, are now filled with admiration and awe. She's been more than healed. She has been restored. So where does the story leave us? So I'll say that uh, being a guy who also has quite a bit of ugliness that he's had to wrestle through over the course of his life, that the practical implication of this story for those of us who have ugliness in us that we try and hide and sometimes makes us feel a bit unlovable is not necessarily that, hey, we should all, all of a sudden come out in public and confess in front of everyone what has gone on. That's not necessarily the practical implication, though it might be for some of us. The point, I think, is that we, in faith and by faith, need to stop hiding our ugliness and take it out of the box. And to realize that by keeping it in the box, we're doing more damage. And God wants us to not only be healed from it, but to be restored. To realize that hiding that ugly thing that we think makes us feel unlovable, it's an affliction that begins to bleed into every other part of our lives. It forces space between us and our relationship with God, it forces space between us and our relationship with other people. And God says what is hidden must be set free and brought into the light. You know, last week and earlier today, I shared with you that the, the foundational verse for much of this series is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, you know, in that same chapter, just a few verses later, uh, <coughs> John shares another idea. Jesus shares these words as well. John chapter 3, verse 20. And what he says is all those, again, this is tied into that same idea of believing, receiving eternal life. He says, all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right Come to the light so others can see what they are doing. I'm sorry, so others can see that they are doing what 
God wants. What does God want? God wants you to be set free and to remove any barrier that keeps you from running into his arms. Any barrier that keeps you from experiencing the full weight of his love, passion, and desire for you. God loves you intensely, unconditionally, comprehensively, endlessly, and without limits. And anything that keeps you from being able to experience that, God wants that barrier removed. It can be fear. It can be sin. It can be some idol. Whatever it is, God always wants to remove that barrier that keeps you from being able to be wholeheartedly experiencing the fullness of God. Let go of your ugly. He already knows what it is anyway, and be set free. Speaking of, did you really think that Jesus didn't know who touched his robe? Do you really think or imagine that Jesus didn't know the story of this woman when he asked her to share her story? Come on, guys. This is the same Jesus who, in, who earlier in John says, I saw Nathaniel while you were still sitting under the fig tree right? He didn't actually see him. He just knew Nathaniel was sitting on the fig tree, going to be brought to you. This is the same Jesus who knew when he sat down with the woman at the well and said, I know you have actually five husbands and the woman, I'm sorry, the man (laughs) that you're living with right now is not your husband. Do you really think that Jesus who knows these things didn't know who touched his robe and didn't know her story? Of course he did. Of course he knew. His reason for bringing her out in the open and having her share a story had nothing to do with Jesus not knowing. It had to do with Jesus knowing, I know what you need better than you do. And this is what is needed to set you free. So come into the light. Tell me your name. Share with me a story. And the way that you were once known will not be how you were known from this day forward. Transforming your identity. From the bleeding woman to the woman that God set free. From an outcast to a wondrous part of his family. God knows you as well. He knows every part of you. Pretty, ugly, he knows it all. Do you really think he doesn't? Of course he does. And believe me, you are not unlovable. On the contrary, God loves you very much, and he always, always will. And because he loves you, he wants you to be set free. But here's the problem. Love exists. Unlike truth, truth can kind of stand on its own. Love always exists within the context of relationship, right? To be fully experienced, love has to be both given and received. And so the challenge is for us, right? That this love, complete, full, that God has for us doesn't mean quite as much if we're not willing to believe him or receive it. So how about you? Are you able to receive God's love full, wholeheartedly, complete? Or is there something in you, something ugly in you that you try and hide, you don't want anyone else to see that you keep holding on to for some reason that keeps you from experiencing the fullness of God's love for you. Because if it's there, then I think the next question counts. What is God wanting you to do in order to be set free? 
What is God wanting you to do with that ugliness in order for you to be set free? Whatever it is, do it and walk in the light. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the joy and the wonder of being in your presence to be able to walk through uh, your truth, God, to be able even to walk through this story, this beautiful story of the once bleeding woman who you have restored, God, and to be able to see the way your love towards her was so sweet, so gentle, and, uh, and the way that you cared for her more than her body, you cared for her whole being, Lord. And I thank you that that's how you love us as well. And sometimes in order to experience that love, we have to do things that are a bit uncomfortable. And that's what comes from being trapped in this sin-scarred world and to be able to let go of those things that we just selfishly want to hold on to without realizing what it's doing to our lives, the damage that's being done. And sometimes even when we do, we still don't want to let go because we're afraid. And Lord, I pray that, God, you will help us find the assurance of knowing that love conquers all fear. Your love towards us is greater than any fear we might have. We simply have to trust you. And I pray that we would. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be able to uh, come into this time. And I pray, Lord, that as you're speaking to us, Lord, I pray that our response would be to listen and to respond in obedience, whatever Respond in obedience to whatever you might have or say to us. And God, in so doing, experience the liberation, the freedom, and this vibrant life of faith that you have called us into. Love you. Thank you. Praise you. In Jesus' name.